0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host Bart Sheridan. Back with me, and back from vacation as well, is Tim Cockrell. Tim presented our latest sermon here at Grace Baptist Church this past Sunday, and that was from Exodus chapter 17. So, Tim, thanks for coming back from vacation, in particular.
1: It's good to be back. It was good to get away as a family. We went up to New England and got to see some dear friends and have some time of rest and relaxation and. As I mentioned, it at church on Sunday, it's good to be home, and we're excited to be back.
0: Well, it's good to have you, and uh, I listen to a talk radio show fairly regularly, and they have a segment, Best and Worst. So let's do it. Best and Worst of Your Vacation. What was All the right. best part of your vacation?
1: So the best part was our family went to a family camp that we have regularly gone to for the last 10 years, and just a real time of rest and refreshment recalibration, if you will. You know, Katie and I, ironically, a year ago were just starting conversations about the possibility of coming here to Grace. Uh Aha! yeah. And so it was interesting a year later to be able to sit there and see how God has provided. We're so thankful for his uh, faithful leading and even being able to visit our uh, previous church and see the way God is is blessing and providing for them there with uh, the leadership that he has placed there. So it was just a sweet time as a family to be able to rest and... And
0: relax. Great. And it's not always easy to relax with seven of you together. It's true. That's one of the benefits
1: of family (laughs) camp is they do a great job of having some activities for the kids so that Katie and I can just... Go for a walk or go kayaking or just sit on the beach and and talk a little bit there. And I'm
0: guessing that I might know a little bit about the worst. Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe you're going to come up with something different.
1: Yeah. So uh, we were supposed to be gone for about two weeks and about mid or toward the end of the first week, uh, our family ended up having COVID. And so that was an unwelcome visitor for us that cut that short. We ended up coming home early. Unfortunately, that meant and uh, not having some time with family that we were expecting to up uh-huh. in New England. But, you know, God is sovereign in that. Ironically, you know, I was getting ready to preach on God leading them into the wilderness and in <laughs> directions that, they, that didn't make sense to them. And so we got to to just apply that in our own family situation
0: as well. Good, good. Well, it is good to have you back. And that last comment is a great segue into what I wanted to ask you first. I, I so appreciated this past Sunday the call to... A true reality. You reminded us that, that, and I think this is a quote, what we call the wilderness wandering of the Israelites, of course, is in fact God's wilderness leading, and it's a purposeful trek of growth and maturity and discipleship. So how should that realization that, that God was fully in control of what was going on and he had plans for the people over the coming 40 years, how should that realization affect how I live my life on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, I think when we think about following God's leading, hmm. there is an implicit assumption that if we just follow where God's leading, that our kids will be healthy, our marriage will be happy, our finances will be stable. And there really is kind of a startling realization as we look at God's work with Israel that he leads them specifically to a place where they are deprived of certain desires, where there are hardships that they didn't anticipate. And so as we think about how should that affect how we view our lives, when those hard times come, there is a temptation to think, I've been abandoned by God or this isn't fair. He's let me down. You know, I've been faithful to him and now he's not being faithful to me. And all we have to do is look at over and over and over again in the Bible how God uses wilderness seasons to prepare and equip and deepen people's dependence on him. I mean, Moses himself went out into the wilderness for really 40 years in Midian working as a shepherd. And that was a key part of how God prepared Moses to serve. Paul went out in the wilderness you know in Arabia and that was something that God used in his life. Joseph had the wilderness time of, of uh, you know being sold into slavery and serving as a slave and then ultimately in prison uh, before God raised him up to leadership. Abraham had the wilderness wanderings of leaving his home country and coming into a land that God had promised and suddenly being hit with, with famine, and so, I mean, over and over and over again. And then the example we even mentioned on Sunday of Jesus Himself being baptized and being driven into the wilderness. I think we have to have room in our theology for the wilderness seasons being God's good provision for us. And that sounds paradoxical just as we <laughs> say that, but that God loves us too much to give us just ease and prosperity. That he knew that if he brought the Israelites straight into the land, that they would be forgetful and they would be prideful, but that by bringing them through a wilderness in which there were hardships and and there were desires that went unmet, they realized that when all you have is God, you realize God is all you need. And and that sounds like it could be a a greeting card, if you will, but... (laughs) Stitch that on a pillow. There is a, a depth of understanding there that when we walk through that valley... We come to know God in ways that we would not have otherwise. And every one of us who have walked with the Lord for very long can identify certain seasons in which that is true. And so I think when we remember that God is leading, God is orchestrating this plan, and it is for our good. You know, Romans 8 teaches that, but Deuteronomy 8 teaches that as well. That I led you out into the wilderness to test you, to reveal what is in your heart, and to do good for you I think those are the truths we have to rest in, especially when we don't have clear answers for why God has allowed certain things.
0: Well, two questions come on come to my mind as you're talking here, and, and these are two questions that come up regularly as we're reading through the Scriptures. One is, and you referenced Romans 8, 28, mm-hmm. for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to His purpose mm-hmm. is what you reference here. Um, could one make the argument uh, that if I'm one of those ones wandering in the wilderness who uh, later on failed and, of course, you know they were kept from entering into the land, so that's for my good? I didn't get to enter into the land? Mm. This, this caused me, God, to fail. You caused me to fail.
1: Right. Well, and I think we have to recognize that the trials or the tests are not God trying to trip us up but our god trying is is god seeking to reveal what's in our heart. And so as the Israelites are here in the wilderness, the, all the grumbling, the complaining, even the quarreling and fighting that comes to the surface here are for the purpose of discipline and discipleship that they might realize we are desperately in need of a savior. We are not people that are mostly good who need just a little bit of supplemental help. We are broken, desperately sinful people that need a deliverer, not just to bring us out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of us. You know, this expectation that we can control our environment or or demand certain things of God. And so when we face certain trials, there are going to be times where we fail and we struggle. But that doesn't mean God has failed, but rather it is an invitation to renewed dependence, repentance. And ultimately forgiveness that God gives us. And so there are times where we're going to be in a wilderness and what it reveals about our heart is actually pretty ugly, hmm. but that God is able to restore. You know, I, I mentioned on Sunday, many times God brings his people back into the wilderness, either literally or metaphorically. And one of the metaphorical ways he did that would be the the time of captivity in Babylon, for instance. This was a punishment for their unfaithfulness to God. But it was through this time in Babylon that he challenges and convicts them and then restores them back into the land.
0: A sanctifying process, what you're talking about. Exactly. And, what, and when you're talking about that, it, it reminds me of the, the two words we so often hear associated with God, God's grace, God's mm-hmm. mercy. So so you're saying it doesn't cause them to stumble. It reveals their, stomach, it reveals what's already there and what's going to be there if it's not dealt with appropriately. Exactly. So okay. even the people that were being kept out of the land,
1: I believe that many of them respond with repentance and faith, mm-hmm. certainly not all of them. But that ultimately, God will allow us to go through short-term pain mm-hmm. to produce eternal purposes. Good. And if we keep that in mind, I think it helps us to respond rightly to those difficulties.
0: Okay. Well, I mentioned there are two questions that come to my mind. The second one is, so God has planned out this 40-year one, what ends up being a 40-year wandering for their good. So does that mean these Israelites are automatons? They're, they're robots in God's plan, and they're just marching along? And these are questions that often come up. Mm-hmm,
1: right. Well, and we addressed this a little bit even when we talked about Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh hardening his heart right. and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I think we have to recognize that what God has planned and what God causes are two different things. So God knows in his plan that the Israelites are ultimately going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But God's purpose is that he would draw these people into relationship with himself and that they would follow him in faith. So we're going to see that as they come to Mount Sinai. They're going to purify themselves. Uh, He's going to give them the law that is to govern them. And then ultimately he's going to bring them to the border and have the people go into the land and spy it out to see... You know, what are the people like? What is the land like? And in those moments, the people have a decision, are we going to trust God or are we not going to trust God? And ultimately, we know that the majority of the people did not trust God. They didn't follow him in faith. And so because of that, there was a short-term, from the eternal perspective, Mm -hmm. consequence Mm -hmm. of this 40 years of wandering, of not being allowed to enter into the land. But a long-term an eternal perspective, rest that was still offered. That if they would trust in God, they would ultimately, eternally be with him in his presence.
0: Okay, very good. Well, I appreciate you taking that, those leaps with me here, sure. those uh, those uh, side trails. Uh, Tim, in, in the narrative of the, of the people's grumber, grumbling and arguing with Moses, we, we see them in verse 2 demanding from Moses. They say, give us water to drink. And Moses appropriately told them, uh, their argument isn't with him, it's with God. They were focused on the wrong provider. It was only God who could provide what they needed. Uh, seems to me it's a lot like us. Well, I'll, I'll leave you out of it. It's a <laughs> lot like me. I, I so often look everywhere but to God for what I need. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and I think I'll speak for myself here. Often my first impulse is toward Self sufficiency. Solve the problem. So, can I solve the problem? Can I control the situation? Do the resources that I have in my hand provide what it is that I need? And many times that is a a practical or functional atheism that we're saying, okay, God, I don't need you because I have money in the bank or I have good health to do the things that I feel like I need to, or I have a home or a network of resources or relationships. When those resources fail us, then we turn to something to rescue us. Now, what we should be turning to is to God. But many times what we do is we, we turn to the intermediary, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we turn to the doctors in order to heal us. We turn to the, the business deal that we think is going to provide us the financial resources that we need and either even... the elder at church who yeah. is the leader of my soul exactly <laughs> we, we can turn to people and there there are places for that but i think the danger is that we look to the gift rather than the giver for the provision mm-hmm. and in that we can assume that we know how god's going to provide or we know the the resources that we ourselves need now, there's no denying they needed water to drink, <laughs> but they came to God with this almost uh, entitlement or or this demanding spirit. And so we have to just be careful that we're not approaching God in this almost superstitious or or magical way saying hey, God, if I do this, then you'll do this. I'm reminded of the story of when the Israelites were in the land then and they had the Ark of the Covenant uh, under the priest Eli. You know, his sons decided, hey, we're going to go into battle. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant as our our rabbit's foot, right. our lucky charm, because as long as we have the presence of God with us, we can't fail. usually doesn't go well. Exactly. <laughs> but, but if you think about it, there are certain things, whether it's religious traditions that we have. Hey, as long as I, I go to church every Sunday or give certain money or even have family devotions, then that means I'm going to be healthy, my business is going to go well, my kids are going to walk with the Lord. And that's where I have to just constantly orient myself to God has given us a number of means of grace that we are right to depend on. But it is the God of
0: grace that we are ultimately depending on. Good. So when my car goes down, I shouldn't necessarily first think of my mechanic. God, what are you going to do? And that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't right. it? God, what are we going to do with our car, mm-hmm. yours yep. and mine? Exactly. <laughs> that helps me to know that it's not all my problem. That's great. <laughs> well, Tim, you mentioned uh, the somewhat parallel New Testament passage of 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verses three through four, where Paul uses this scene of. Moses striking the rock, we can call it parallel or mm-hmm. certainly a cross-reference passage, Paul uses that that scene to illustrate what Jesus did for us mm-hmm. in salvation. Can, can you talk a little bit about God's use of, of what we call typology throughout the scriptures to reveal truth? That's a, a study in and of itself, but as we study scripture, what should we be looking at? And When is a type what we think is a type not really a type?
1: Right. It's a a complex question. So let's just start by kind of defining typology. Typology would be something, especially that we see in the Old Testament, that is a foreshadowing or prefiguring of something that we would see in the New Testament, ideally, you know, in what Christ himself would do for us. And, And so there are many ways in which we can see that the Old Testament is anticipating and, and prefiguring what Jesus would do. Where it becomes difficult is I feel like we can fall into one of two extremes. One is we begin to see Jesus in everything. You know, we say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're eating manna and Jesus is the bread of life. And so God is providing their daily bread of, of Jesus, if you will. Mm-hmm. The other is that we almost ignore the Old Testament completely. And, and that we say, well, that all is old, and that ultimately, if it's pointing us to the New Testament, let's just camp out in the New Testament and, and, you know, look at the actual rather than the anticipatory. I think both have their dangers. So when we think about typology, I think one of the most helpful things, it stands to reason, is when the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament, well, let's start there. You know, so Jonah is a good example. If I were reading the story of Jonah, I might not immediately think, you know what, Jonah is pointing me to Jesus because he was in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus was in the tomb for three days, and he came out. Well, there's also a number of differences there. Jonah was running from God. Jesus was faithful (laughs) to God. You know, Jonah was not literally dead. He was in the whale and God commissioned him. Jesus was brought back from the dead. But Jesus himself said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so will the Son of Man be in the grave for three days. So those types of parallels help us to see, okay, here's how Jesus is using it. In the same way with Paul. If Paul did not cite this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, I probably would not be looking at the story of the water coming from the rock and say, you know what, that rock is Jesus. But the fact that Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, tells us that rock was Christ, Hmm. it then helps us to look back at that story through the lens of what Jesus has done and say, okay, in what sense is this Christ? And so as we mentioned on Sunday, I think the idea that the rock was the one who received the judgment so that the blessings of God could flow to the people. Well, now we begin to see, while there's some really rich symbolism that's represented there, I think we see the same thing in in the offering of Isaac by Abraham on Mount Moriah, that although it is not specifically said, hey, this is a type of Christ, we can clearly see that a father bringing his only son to a, a mountainside and having a substitute die in his place. Well, this points us to what Jesus ultimately would do for us as God gave his only son so that we could be spared. So I think what we want to do is look for those prefigurings of Christ, but hold our interpretation of those carefully unless Scripture explicitly says, and this shows us what Christ was like.
0: Is it fair? Is it appropriate to say that the whole of the story of the Exodus and the wilderness leadings, as we've already categorized it, are a type or is a type of God's provision for his people of salvation through Christ? I think
1: absolutely. You know, we see this in in Isaiah, we see it even in Ezekiel, uh, this kind of new Exodus type of language that says, yes, God brought his people out of bondage from Egypt but there will be a greater exodus in which God will lead and deliver his people and he will be with them and he will establish a covenant relationship with them. And so everything from, you know, Moses the deliverer being drawn up out of Egypt and rescued from a murderous king, mm-hmm. you know, we see that in Matthew out of Egypt called my son is is a parallel that's given there. But then God's work of deliverance, the the Passover lamb, all of those things are elements of Hmm. what we ultimately see Jesus doing for us in salvation.
0: Good, good. Well, and Tim, as we, we move into the next passage, we're here starting in verse 8, where we've got the first military action for the new nation of, of Israelites. You talked in your sermon of Moses' holding up his staff, and this was the utensil that God mm-hmm. you know, directed him to use in the parting of the – well, in the turning of the Nile into blood, mm-hmm. water to blood, and certainly into the parting of the waters. Um, Moses and her are there to help him hold the mm-hmm. staff up, and it's all a – you said it's all a, a recognition of their reliance on God's power. So what are some ways – but you also pointed out, and by the way, that, that power wasn't in the staff mm-hmm. and in Moses' holding it up. That was simply symbolic. What are some ways that we similarly rely on what I'll call props instead of on God? And this is related to what we've already talked about, I think, but what are some ways that specifically some things that we rely on Mm -hmm. that you see?
1: Yeah, I think every one of us have our own, I'll call them functional saviors, those things that we've seen God use, Mm -hmm. but then we, again, depend on the gift rather than the giver. So our own personal gifting or personality or education or experience are all those types of things that God has blessed us with those things, but I can begin to rely on, you know, my knowledge of a situation or my ability to invest money, for instance, for uh, financial security in the future, um, even the danger of trusting my own wisdom. Let's just say somebody comes to me for counsel and, and they say, I'm in this situation, I'm, I'm really struggling, I don't know what to do. Do I pause and actually think, what are the scriptures that I can share? Or am I praying, God, give me wisdom and insight into this person's situation? Or do I immediately think, oh, I've seen situations like this before. Got this. I know, I know how to advise them. It's a subtle difference, but it ultimately relates to and, and reflects some amount of self-sufficiency. And, and I think... Interestingly, later on in the story of the Exodus, when the people are grumbling and grumbling and complaining, and Moses says, Must I provide for you the water from the rock again? And he takes uh, a yeah.
0: deep sigh.
1: <laughs> and, he, and he hits the rock, <clears throat> there's this subtle shift that's taken place that rather than Moses following God's instruction and trusting God's provision, Moses is saying, I've got to do this, I know what to do, and I'm going
0: to do it. And by the way, God had said, speak to the rock, right? Exactly. He just put it into context. And Moses So rather
1: than it. obeying what God has said, Moses kind of does what is right in his own eyes, if you will. And so I think there is this sense in which when God first calls Moses, he says, what's in your hand? And he says, I have a staff. And he says, then you throw the staff on the ground. And he begins to use what's already in his hand for supernatural work. But as a result, I think there's a sense in which Moses begins to look to that staff rather than to the power of God in certain hmm. situations. But here, Moses is raising up his staff and asking, imploring God to intervene. It's the the posture and the power of prayer that's represented here. And so I think we just have to recognize that there's always going to be something that we are prone to depend on, to find our security in, uh, to look to our significance for, and whatever that is, we just have to be guarded to say, no, ultimately my hope and my, my strength and the power is in God, not in whatever that functional Savior might be.
0: As I hear you sharing that, my mind then goes, starts going a little a little different direction. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if these aren't valid too. Um, perfunctory prayers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, I'm supposed to pray, so therefore a a regular time in the Word that is perfunctory—that mm-hmm. well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It becomes more of a matter of doing <clears throat> doing what I'm supposed to do instead of being who I'm supposed to be. Yep. Those types of things. We can we not also rely on that for our sanctification and for our you know uh, doing the right thing? Sure. Yeah. Church, whatever, it is, going to church
1: that externalism that Jesus warns us about in Matthew chapter 6 of, right. of that there's these people that are are doing good things but doing them for the wrong reasons. And so I think having that fresh dependence, even desperation is is a healthy thing and that's where it's ironic that it's in the wilderness that we are most likely to have those marks of spiritual vitality. And so, it's as much as we don't like the heat and the drought of the wilderness, we trust that God is producing in us what the prosperity of, of Egypt. Would not produce,
0: and hopefully during those times, our roots go deeper. Exactly. To use the agricultural theme that yep. we both like so much. Well, one thing I noted in, in, in this particular picture, where where Aaron and her are coming alongside Moses, holding his hands up when he was losing the strength to do so over mm-hmm. the course of the day, it certainly speaks to me of the need for each of us to have the support of those around us as they're doing the necessary or as We or somebody else is doing the necessary hard, um, I might call it uh, unseen and often unappreciated Mm. spiritual battle, spiritual warfare to come alongside these prayer warriors, come alongside these ones who are doing the hard work of the ministry.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, God doesn't call us to be lone rangers in our walk with him. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that in Matthew 18 or in uh, Exodus 18 as we look at, at Moses, you know, mm. burning himself out essentially as he's trying to care for the people. But when we look at Aaron and her, I think we're reminded of one the value of corporate prayer that as we are burdened for something even if it's something very personal, There is great benefit in sharing that burden with a a small group of people that they might join with others in prayer. Just on Sunday, I had somebody pull me aside and and ask me to be praying with them about something that that they didn't want shared publicly, but that they were just really burdened for. And what a privilege that is then to be able to walk with them through that. And I think that just reminds us that church is not just some place that we attend, but it needs to be a group to which we belong. And as great as Sunday morning is and the value of corporate worship, I just want to highlight and reiterate the importance of our ABFs, mm-hmm. of our small groups, of our, our men's and women's studies and, and Bible studies, and then the informal relationships that can can result there because we need one another, not just at a big picture superficial level, but at a deep heart level. And, you know, I would just challenge you if you're listening if something major were to happen today, you know, a, a cancer diagnosis, a prodigal child, a, a, a marriage crisis, who would be the the Aaron and her that you would turn to to ask for prayer, to be seeking counsel? Because if you don't have a couple of people, ideally people in our church family that come to mind, that might be an indicator that God's calling you to deeper relationships so that you can be a part of what he is doing here in our church family.
0: And could I jump on that and add that if we're seeing somebody, we know somebody who is that prayer warrior who's doing that deep on their knees, behind the scenes work that often goes unappreciated Mm. to come alongside them and say, hey, thank you for what you do. Send them a note because they're the ones who usually send you a note, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, send them a note and thank them for what they do because we need those people holding up the arms of those who are out front. Often, those who often get the the atta boys or the attagirls, and we those people really need that encouragement because what they do is absolutely essential to the ministry.
1: Absolutely, and I might just add, you know, we're talking about the importance of corporate prayer and our small groups and our ABFs and. In, in informal gatherings and, and I think that that's happening in a variety of ways in grace but we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about the group that gathers every Wednesday night right. to devote themselves to prayer for the needs of our church for the the health of our church you know tonight as our VBS gathers we're gonna have a, a group of adults that are, are interceding for God to be at work and there is such power you know as we talked about on Sunday the, the result of the battle in the valley is a result of the prayers
0: on the hill. And I'm just so thankful for our prayer warriors that gather each week to do that as well. Certainly, certainly. Tim, we're running up against time, but I do want to get to this point. I think it's important, this building of an altar here in verse 15 of chapter 17. And Moses names it, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. It reminds me of the times I've studied the scripture, studied the names of God. I think of Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Nisi here. Uh, these names of God, they mean something, and they, they tell us more about who God is, the different facets of God's character. Mm-hmm. What a rich study that can be. Can you, can you comment on that a little bit? Absolutely, because each
1: of the names of God bring out different aspects or facets of his character, as you've just mentioned. And what we're seeing here is that it is his character as it's revealed in the lived experience of Israel. And so every time they would say, the Lord is my banner, you would hope that they would be remembering the battle in the valley and the intercession on the hill. That God is the one that they look to for identity, for direction, for sufficiency in the midst of the physical battle, and by implication, of course, then the spiritual battle as well. So that no matter what the next number of years held as they wandered in the wilderness or even as they went in to the promised land, they would be reinforcing and reminding themselves, the Lord is our banner. He is the one who goes before us in battle and he will have the victory.
0: So, so you're saying the, the name is not only memorializing who God is, but it's also memorializing his specific uh, intervention in their lives at that time. Exactly. And that then becomes a catalyst for greater faith and
1: faithfulness in the future, that it's not just, backward-looking, but also forward-looking.
0: Right. Very good. Great. Well, Tim, thanks for being with us again. I look forward to getting with you next time. Next week we'll be in Chapter 18. You gave us just a quick couple comments. Anything else you want to share as we're preparing for that uh, message here this week?
1: I would just say I think Many of us are in danger of overextending ourselves and and being on the verge of ministry burnout. And I think the the message and the pattern that we see there, even the pattern that we see in the New Testament church of plurality of leadership is not an easy thing, but it is a vital thing for us to effectively do ministry.
0: Great. We look forward to it. Well, Tim Cockerell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapter 17, and you can access that and each grace message on demand through YouTube. You can also access each podcast on demand using your favorite podcast app. And then finally, you can also access each sermon and podcast by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and your comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's word in Exodus chapter 18. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning in to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecederville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.